this whole hobby, at least my, my little subsection of it, most people don't really have any idea how it works or <laughs> even what it is. So I, I keep it pretty basic. Welcome to the A440 Podcast, the one music podcast everyone can get in tune with. I'm your host, Charles Fiore, and we're listening to Windows by Sugar Candy Mountain from the 2016 album 666 on Pioptic Records. This album is available on special edition vinyl, or you can download it from sites like Bandcamp. Mike Dixon is the founder of Pioptic Records in Tucson, Arizona, and we'll get to my fantastic interview with Mike in just a few. Even before I began hosting this podcast, I was always keeping one ear out for new music. I'm always listening, at least partially, to what music's being played everywhere I go. I'm sure you're the same way. I liken it to deep sea fishing. You're chugging along the water, hanging out with your friends, enjoying the salt air, but you've also got a line in the water, trolling behind the boat, hoping to catch something. Well, that's kind of what it's like for me when I'm out in public. I've always got one ear cocked to hear something interesting. Well, the same goes for news. I can be reading about something entirely unrelated to music, and suddenly I'll come across a link or some obscure reference, and before long I'll be down some internet rabbit hole reading about Bill Withers. Uh, from season one, or Belle Biv DeVoe, or, as with today's episode, people who lathe cut their own records. Now, I believe it was a story about the new Fred Rogers movie uh, that came out recently, and in the article they mentioned an episode of Mr. Rogers where he cuts his own record, and they linked to an internet forum, uh, the Secret Society of Lathe Trolls, that is entirely devoted to this extremely niche hobby. Well, I knew right away I wanted to do an episode on record lathes. I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing this podcast was invented for. So I reached out to Steve Espinola, founder and moderator over at the Secret Society of Lathe Trolls. That's www.lathetrolls.com. And he introduced me to today's guest, Mike Dixon. Mike wears many hats, all centered around vinyl. He owns five companies, uh, including Pioptic Records, which has released ultra-limited records not only for bands such as Sugar Candy Mountain, but also The Flaming Lips, Southerly, Ariel Pink, and more. He also repairs and restores vintage mono machines and sells parts for those machines, hosts traveling live-cut sessions that have taken him to Coachella, Pitchfork, and beyond, brings educational programming into schools, and hosts camps that train enthusiasts like himself how to lathe-cut records. We touch on this a bit in the interview, but for the uninitiated, in the music business, traditionally, if a band wants to release its music on an LP, you know, vinyl, they make a mold, and then they print a bajillion copies of that mold to sell on vinyl. Now, this process takes place in a record stamping factory. 20, 15, you know, even 10 years ago, though, the price of this was not within reach of most bands. They would have to print way more copies than they could ever sell in order to make the cost per unit digestible. 
Enter alchemists like Mike Dixon, who scoured the world for vintage record leads, taught themselves to restore and repair these incredible machines, and then offered their wizardry for a modest price to bands wanting short-run records for their tens of fans. Niche? You bet. But not cheap. While researching this episode, I heard unconfirmed legends of some prospectors extracting these vintage machines out of places like the Congo for upwards of six figures. This entire hobby exists at the borderlands of obsession, swashbuckling, and art. And as you know, that's right where this podcast loves to live. I caught up with Mike right before his band practice. He was rehearsing Tom Waits songs for an upcoming tribute show. Enjoy. So, Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the A440 podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I have to admit that until recently, I wasn't aware that this was even something people did. But I feel like I've discovered like a whole new universe. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that community a little and just this sort of common interest you all share. Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a very niche thing inside of a niche inside of the music industry. Uh, lathe cut records are... are a lot different than than professionally produced um, pressed records that you would get at a pressing plant or that you would buy at a record store. Most of the records that you buy at a, at a record store are made using a pressing process, which is very similar to injection molding, like making a very precise GI Joe. Um, you know, it's not exactly the same, but it's very similar, and and they're they're mass produced. Most pressing plants will only do 500 or more. And for a lot of bands or a lot of new artists, making 500 copies of something is, is too cost prohibitive because they, they can't actually sell that many. So a lathe cut is done one at a time rather than make, cutting your master, making your molds, putting it on a big 60 ton press and knocking out 500 of them. They're done one at a time in real time. The audio is played through the cutter head uh, in the same way that a master would be made for for pressing, um, but instead of being cut onto what they call a lacquer, like a master, there it's cut onto odd materials like plexiglass or PETG plastic, uh, polycarbonate acrylic, things like that. Being able to do them one at a time, if you allows you to do small runs. If your band only wants twenty copies, then that can be done. Um, they're going to cost a little bit more than they would per piece than if you bought five hundred but you don't have to buy 500. You can buy 20, 30, 40 and uh, sell them as like unique art pieces uh, to your fans without investing a ton of money. Uh, so the, the lathe trolls, as we call it, um, is a bunch of people that are interested in either the tech or the art side or just the cutting side of making these short run records. It also has a lot of people that are professional mastering engineers that are more on the actual pressing plant side but at least for what i do i i stick to the the art the the strange art side of making the records you do these records on different materials uh do these different materials have sound different sounds or different qualities oh yeah uh the the most for me the most cost effective and best sound is polycarbonate plastic using a um oh a process called embossing 
most record lathes are originally intended to remove material from the disc to cut it out and you can get a a little bit higher fidelity doing that but it's a lot more expensive um you have to use a diamond cutting stylus that costs about 250 bucks is very fragile um the process is uh requires a lot more work and a lot uh, there's a lot more things that can go wrong with embossing you're just kind of scratching this thing into it into the into the disc and we've gotten to the point where we can get really nice sounding records i mean our noise floor is very very low and in fact i've I've cut records that are quieter than a lot of pressed records that I bought recently. The fidelity is not going to be quite as high, but most people walking into the room with one of these playing are not going to have any idea that it's not just a standard record. Um, the band will be able to tell, they'll be like, you know, oh, it's, it sounds different in, at 5K or 125 hertz is uh, louder or not as loud or whatever. The, the band that sat in front of professional studio monitors for hours and hours mixing this thing is going to be able to tell a little bit of a difference, sure. but your average person really can't. And um, in fact, I've had, I, I've cut probably 30,000 records or 30,000 sides over the last 13, 14 years. The records that I'm cutting now, because it has been sort of a learning curve and you know, it's a, a handful of people have been sort of slowly perfecting this process over the years. Um, but I have some bands that I cut records for and they uh, come back and be like, I actually like the sound of this better than my master. Huh. You know, it definitely has its own sort of effect that it does. Some people call it lo-fi. I would say upper mid fidelity, um, at least at least what we're getting, you know, uh, these days. And But there are a lot of people doing it in a lot of different ways. And uh, some some are better than others. Some have more experience than others. Some spend more money on the materials. And so it's lathe cuts are very are varied i guess in in how good they're going to sound from who makes them and what kind of music is on them uh but yeah so the polycarbonate with embossing is my bread and butter those sound i would say like 85 to 90 percent of a of a pressed record you can if you want to go up to 95 to 100 percent, you can use diamonds with pet g um, okay. But that again, that's much more expensive. But then there's a lot of materials that people just kind of mess around with: X-rays, laser discs. You know, I've made record, I've made playable drum cymbals out of brass for Dale Crover <laughs> from the Melvins. Those sounded horrible, but right. you could hear the music, and they're guaranteed to sound better on your turntable than any other cymbal in the world. So you're actually um, cutting music onto a drum cymbal and then putting that drum cymbal on a record player, and then seeing what what comes out of the speakers that's the yeah I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because i'm making bellless drum cymbals out of uh sheet brass but uh but yeah it's you know it will play as a cymbal and it will play as a it's i'm not i'm not going to zildjian and buying you know a hundred uh cymbals and then trying to turn them into <laughs> records i'm i'm making i'm manufacturing the the cymbal and you know again it's not going to be the best sounding cymbal that you have on your kit but it does work <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> that's funny uh is there a, is there a weird material that you kind of secretly like the sound of a lot of people use picnic plates uh, plastic picnic plates from the grocery store okay. that's a, that was especially when i got started 12 13 years ago that was sort of the like secret material that you could practice on without without spending a lot of money or or worrying about ruining a stylus too easily and the the fidelity of the music is actually really good 
the noise floor is very low or I mean very high. They're pretty noisy, but the music translates really well if you can kind of ignore that in the background because it's a 10 cent, you know, it's a 10 cent plastic picnic plate. I did a whole series of them early on, you know, as I was kind of learning and, and improving and people loved them. They're just, they're goofy and weird. We did, I have a company called Mobile Vinyl Recorders that goes out to events and festivals for corporate clients. And we were working with Cliff Bar and, you know, one of their big things is sustainability and upcycling. Um, we were, we kind of, we did a lot of research together trying to find a way that we could make something that, was, that wasn't super wasteful. And uh, one of the things that we did at, I think we did at Pitchfork and at uh, A3C Festival in Atlanta was to take picnic plates they had donated to a, a, a food bank or a homeless shelter. People ate pizza or whatever off of them. Then they had somebody clean them. They sent them to us. We cut the rims off, poked a hole in the center and took these used picnic plates and made records for Beach House and Martin Courtney from Real Estate and uh, Trey Anastasio from wow. uh, Fish. Um, a, lot, a lot of pretty big bands and uh, then gave them out at the festivals. I mean, you've recorded live a lot. I mean, um, straight from a, a record laid, I mean, you re- recorded for bands like the XX at the Coachella Music Festival uh, and for Justin Timberlake as well. Is that, um, so, yeah. I mean, I mean should, should you have, uh, I mean, these, these are not particularly portable devices. <laughs> I guess, should you have chosen a lighter vocation? Well, uh, you know, the, the fact that they are kind of big and bulky is one of the things that makes it interesting at these festivals. They stand mm-hmm. out, you know, they, when you walk by, so my business partner, Chris and I wear lab coats and shirts and ties kind of as an homage to Abbey road back in the fifties and the sixties when this, this technology was new science. Um, but also when you walk past us in our lab coats, you look over and you see these 16 inch uh, turntables that, you know, are, two feet high you immediately know this is not a dj <laughs> and uh so it gets it gets people's attention and but the, the machines that we use are not particularly un importable unportable they they weigh about 120 pounds but two people can carry them uh we drive them all over the country in our in our uh econo line van but yeah we we've worked with the xx and justin timberlake and the isley brothers and the flaming lips and all kinds of huge artists, but a lot of times what we're doing is taking a pre-recorded track rather than a feed from the soundboard. We can do the feed from the soundboard, but then you're only going to get one copy for every machine that we have, which which is usually four. So that's not that's not all that cost effective for the the client. So a lot of times what they want to do is give away what they call takeaways, um, something that the that the person at the festival can take home and play and enjoy and show their friends and uh so when when we do that we have to crank them out and the best way to do that is uh with a pre-recorded track but we but we can we do a lot of times go out to festivals and do recording booths we went to telluride bluegrass festival this year and set up a recording booth and all these bluegrass bands and just fans would come in uh to the the telluride library and record straight to a record we do that quite a bit uh, you hear you hear it talked about a little bit, like in terms of uh, like food production. Sometimes people feel like they're disconnected from the food they eat. You know, no one goes out and kills their own cow and then makes a hamburger. And in this case, it's kind of cool because listeners are actually super connected now to like the actual recording 
process, which maybe most of us aren't in this sort of age when music is like super disposable and we can just, you know, we download an MP3 or stream it and then forget about it. You know, this is, this is kind of bringing the listener in the consumer in, in a very tangible way. Yeah. And I think that the whole vinyl resurgence is backlash to Spotify and even, you know, like Napster era stuff mm-hmm. where you have access to anything in the world and you can get it for almost free. And so it doesn't really have any value. So for people that really value music, they want to actually spend money on it. They want to actually interact with it. They want to touch it. They want to put it on their turntable. They want to be forced every four minutes or every 20 minutes or whatever it is to go and flip the record or find something else. You know, when you have unlimited choices, it's sometimes hard to pick. But I think a lot of vinyl people that are into vinyl will go over to their record shelf, not knowing what they want. And they'll just start picking the I want to hear this right now. You know, I would have never gone to Spotify to listen to this, but because it's sitting here in front of me, it brings back a memory or it makes me want to hear a song or it makes me want to check out a record I haven't ever listened to. It's just a different way of interacting. And, um, you know, there, there are some people that care about that and find that valuable. And there are some people that don't. And either way is cool. But I personally like to interact with what I'm listening to in, in a little more, in a little deeper way. Absolutely. I mean, I think the argument can be made that we sort of appreciate art more and we can hold it in our hands. Like books, for example, are more than just fetish items. You know what I mean? There's a, there's, there's a whole way of interacting with that, the written word there when it's, when it's a physical item. I mean, well, records are kind of the same way, you know? Yeah. I mean, there, if there's a sales trick that if you can get somebody to hold something, like if you're trying to sell something on the street or at a store, if you can get somebody to hold it, they're all of a sudden much more invested in it than they were when they walked in. And so you're, you're almost twice as likely to get somebody to buy something if you can get them to actually handle it. And it's just a psychological thing, but I think, it, I think uh, records play, play on that in the same way. You connect with something more when you're actually in contact with it. Does vinyl really sound better? Does it have a higher fidelity than CDs or tapes, or is that just like nostalgia talking? This question will usually gets me in trouble with audiophiles, and I'm I'm 100% not an audiophile. You know, like I said, I would rather make a record out of a drum cymbal than cut the highest possible fidelity record out there. So I get in, or I stopped getting into this argument, I guess I should say, with with people. But since we're nobody can really uh, you know come back at me right now. I'll, yeah, the floor is yours. My, yeah, yeah. My my opinion and other people share this opinion, other people don't. Vinyl does not objectively sound better. Vinyl sounds different because of the interaction between the, um, the, the physical stylus and the disc. 100% analog recordings can sound better to people that have a really expensive stereo and really good ears because you, there is no like compression or digital loss. Most records that are made now go through digital processing at some point in the chain. It's pretty rare that somebody records onto tape with no digital editing at all and then immediately cuts from that tape to a vinyl master. It's super rare that happens. Theoretically, that can sound better, but it takes somebody with a really good ear and a really good stereo, like $30,000 stereo system, to objectively tell that difference. Gotcha. There are a lot of people that subjectively prefer the sound of vinyl because of that physical interaction. 
And that's great. But again, even for that, you have to have a pretty nice stereo system and you have to have really good ears. For me personally, I'm not a fidelity guy. I don't care about the fidelity possibilities of vinyl. I like the tangibility aspect. I like the large art. I think vinyl sounds great. I think digital sounds great. It's for me, just two different ways of listening to it. I don't have the ears or the stereo, you know, like I have a nice stereo, but it's a vintage, you know, a vintage receiver and a nice vintage turntable and some nice vintage speakers that cost me a total of $400. Um, And, and for me, that's, that's, you know, I really enjoy listening in that way. There are people that will tell you all day long that it objectively sounds better and I, I disagree with them, you know, uh, and that's fine. They can, I'm glad that it's, that, you know, they, they get that out of it. I, if I'm at home, I'm listening to records. If I'm in my car, which has, you know, factory speakers and the factory stereo, I'm not going to be able to tell the difference. You know, I, I, there's a market for that for sure. And I appreciate that. And I understand that, but at least my, for, for the records that I make, mm-hmm. audiophiles are not going to, they, they're not my, they're not my customers because they right. hate lathe cuts. And, you know, I mean, and lathe cuts have a reputation um, as being fairly hit or miss because over the years, it's been a new thing that has gotten better and better. And a lot of people came and went that were, had, had more skills or less skills or put more time and more money into it. And so it is, it's kind of been all over the place. And if you get, since they're not ubiquitous, really, if you buy one at a, if you buy one from a band and it sounds horrible, well, then that's what you think all lathe cuts sound like. Right. And that's, that's not the case. There are some that sound great. There are some that sound horrible and there's all kinds of stops in between, but you know, I like good sounding things, but I don't need to go that extra 5% for 10 times the price. And you're certainly finding a, a lot of customers. I mean, I read, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, your companies are pulling in like a $250,000 in annual revenue. Uh, I mean, so this is much more than a hobby, you know? And I guess I was just surprised to discover just how much money there is in this corner of the universe. I mean, these machines are expensive and very precious. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that, you know, a quarter million dollars in revenue, not nearly as much in like net income. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I write about as many checks as I cash, uh-huh. but the machines that I, that I restore and resell are somewhere between like four and, seven or eight thousand dollars depending on what it is but a lot of a lot of our income is either from these corporate gigs you know that's that's honestly like where a lot of the income comes from for us sure sure um or through two hundred dollar orders of singles for a noise band in omaha or uh, 150 dollars from a singer songwriter in la or whatever Mm -hmm. you know it's a lot of like kind of grinding out small orders but it's it's been really fun and rewarding um you know and i i have a lot of different businesses so i have mobile vinyl recorders i have lathecuts.com which is a um company that i run it's a my studio down here there are two other guys that run their own businesses precarian cuts and lock grooves and they do they do more for hire jobs than i do these days i'm starting to like occasionally dip back in and and cut a job here and there but they they do it full time um, I have a company called the Science of Sound, 
uh, which goes out to elementary schools and libraries and cuts, uh, cuts records for kids and gives them kind of the overview of recorded sound throughout the years, you know, teaches them how their ears work. Um, that's a really fun one. I do do restoration on these machines. I also train people. I have a thing called lathe cut camp where two or three times a year I'll have eight people come down to Tucson into my studio and we'll spend three days learning how it all works and they'll cut their own music to vinyl and, and take records home with them. Uh, sometimes that's for people that own a machine but don't know how to use it. Sometimes it's for people that just bought a machine from me. Sometimes it's for people that are just interested in the process and don't ever want to do it for a hobby or anything. They just want to see how it's done and call it good. And then I have a, I have a couple of record labels. I have a company or I have a record label called Pioptic, People in a Position to Know that I've released almost 300 records over the last 14 years. Everything from lathe cuts to weird records to pressed records. I do a lot of uh, pressing through pressing plants around the country for records that I think need to have more than 100 copies. So if I'm going to do either LPs or, or like a, a large run, I always go through a pressing plant. Lathe cuts are really best for really short run things 50 to 100 or things that are let's say have a limited appeal um <laughs> as far as a customer base goes i mean i love nothing more on this podcast than just to really just talk about people's obsessions and uh and sort of dissecting those obsessions and uh you've said yourself that you're just completely obsessed by this technology uh with these record lathes. i mean could, have you given any thought to that are you able are you able to articulate that obsession at all I don't know really where it came from. I'm not, I've never been very technical as, as a kid, you know, my, my dad never taught me how to, my dad was into woodworking and working on cars and all that kind of stuff, but he, I was never interested in it and he was never interested in making me do it. So um, I was always kind of like, well, I'm going to, I don't need to work with my hands. I'm just going to work with my brain and you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was a high school teacher. I got a marketing degree. I never, I was never really into technical things, but I had always been into records and I had always been in bands. And when I was in college or in high school, I was wanted uh, records for my band, but it was always way too expensive because we couldn't sell 50, much less 500 because all my bands were pretty bad. So I found out about a guy named Peter King in New Zealand, who is the godfather of lathe cuts. He was probably one of the first people doing it. He was by far the, the most well-known. He's still the gold standard. He's, he's my mentor. He's my hero. Um, and he's this guy in New Zealand that since the 80s was doing short-run lathe cuts for bands. He did lathe cuts for the Beastie Boys, for Donovan, for mm. Pavement, um, you know, all kinds of weird noise bands and things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, unfortunately he's kind of been uh because he's never he he would never use the computer you had to call him or or send him a cd in the mail you had to pay for shipping from new zealand you had to bank transfer and money you know when guys like i can kind of came along and started offering this service in the u.s taking paypal answering emails it, it kind of had you know it, it really hurt his business and but i think he definitely needs to be remembered and nice. i i hope that people will look into him um he's got some health problems now and i last i heard he wasn't taking orders at the moment but like i hope everybody like checks into this guy because he's mm -hmm. the original guy and he's definitely an unsung hero that a lot of people don't realize exists 
And uh, he's an incredible dude. Uh, I, I went down to New Zealand on a pilgrimage to meet him and, and hang out with him. I found him um, and had him make some records for me. And once uh, he got in a car wreck, lost both eyes had eye transplants it's a whole lifelong thing but he didn't tell anybody and he started he was doing this he was cutting records for people blind and it was taking eight months ten months a year to get my records back and I had no idea why and then so at that point I was like well I want I want to be able to do more of this I think I'm gonna have to do this myself because he's the only one and I can't get them quickly enough so that was that was the impetus for me to like start looking into these things and I bought I bought broken machines on eBay and having no real technical experience I was totally out of my element and um after a, after a couple of years I ended up buying a complete machine having a guy kind of teach me how to use it and uh, through that guy I met my business partner Chris Dorr and Chris is very technical and Chris was very into this from a technical perspective and I was in it for, for the art. And so we, we kind of had, we were very complimentary in our interests and our abilities. And so I learned a lot of my technical stuff from Chris and uh, Chris and I started working together and it, 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 I think it's an obsession for both of us. And I don't, I don't know exactly why, but um, I really, I really enjoy it. And I, and you know, I, I'm not a great visual artist. Like I can't draw paint or any of that stuff but I'm a good conceptual artist and so I can come up with weird concepts in this medium and execute them and so I think that's really the the success that I've had doing that kind of stuff is what keeps me coming back to it and you and Chris are such a solid team I mean when art when art meets science and uh, it's, it can be really really productive right so that's uh that's that sounds like a good combination so yeah, it's it's been it's been really really productive for both of us because we we have very distinct um, skill sets, and so working together on it, um, you know, is, works out really well for us both. As a record label producer, I mean, you're super into. I mean, you you see yourself very much as a collaborator with the artists you produce, and I guess like there's something kind of mystical I feel like about what you do in some ways, like you're recording human voices and sound made by machines and then kind of capturing them for eternity. Uh, it's almost like dark arts uh, to what you, what you do. Yeah. Well, we always, we always say it's a black art. It's not a science. Nice. Um, yeah. When we're, when we're cutting this stuff, because I'm not a very good musician, I found that this is the, the record label is a really good way for me to collaborate with artists that I really, I really like. And I, I've been fortunate enough to release records for some of my favorite bands in the world, like bands that years ago, I would have never imagined that I could even like talk to much less collaborate with. And um, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll find something at a garage sale or I'll have some sort of weird idea or I'll like find something at a thrift store and I'll build a release around that. And I'll go to an artist and I'll say, hey, I've got this weird idea. What Would you be interested in working on it with me? And because it's so limited, because I don't ask for ongoing rights or digital rights, or I don't get step on, step on toes of the record label, mm -hmm. um, most bands and record labels will see this as a promotional opportunity or just some fun, weird thing that, that's not gonna get in anybody's way. And I'm able to do it. I mean, I, I started thinking last October and November that it would be cool to make a 100% zero waste 
zero, uh, like 100% upcycled record. And so I ended up doing a record for a band called Dr. Dog. And it was a, it was a Christmas record. It was cut onto old laser discs that I found at thrift stores or um, uh, garage sales. Uh, it was using cutting needles that were used in Russia uh, during the Cold War to cut x-rays. Um, it was, I used house paint to paint the covers. I even took the record lathes down to uh, a bar here in town that is 100% solar powered and set the record lathes up there and cut all of the records using only solar powered. So there was zero, there was absolutely nothing new that was used in the production of that record. Holy and, you know, and, but if I had just gone to Dr. Dog, he was a big band and said, Hey, can I do a, can I do your Christmas record? Right. You know, they would have probably said, no, well, we will do it ourselves if we want to do it. Right. Um, or, you know, the record label will do it. But if I can, if I can contribute something that's weird that nobody else can do, then the record label and the band are usually on board with it. And, uh, and I also have a bunch of bands that I've worked with over the years that will come to me and say, Hey, I've got an idea for this weird thing. And then I'll be the one to make it happen. And that that's always really fun for me. Well, Mike, I know you got to get to band practice. You have been so generous with your time and I just really appreciate you, uh, you talking to me. So anything you want to plug before we go? You can find out more about what I do at Michael Dixon. D-I-X-O-N vinylart.com that has a link to all of my different sites and all of my different businesses. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And that's our show. Thanks so much to Mike Dixon and the secret society of lathe trolls. Thanks to sugar candy mountain for the song windows, which we've been listening to throughout the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Learn more about us at a 440 pod.com. Find us on social, uh, a 440 pod. And let's jam again soon. 